Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good. Hey, Andrew. Hi, everybody. Uh, we we are running late today because our, all of our internet went out in D.C., but miraculously, it came back after an hour. Yeah, you know, somehow the entire city lost Verizon internet for uh, at least part of the afternoon here. I'm impressed, though. I'm used to Verizon taking its sweet time getting its internet back up, but... Um, we're up and running here, ready to rock and roll. Uh, I did completely jinx us on the celebration of fall weather on the last episode uh, because it is currently like 97 degrees in Washington. But, you know, what can you do? It's good podcasting weather, at least. Uh, yeah, as long as you could be inside with Internet and AC, it's all good. There you go. We've got our internet, got our AC. Uh, I'll try to reverse jinx it here and say I hope it stays 97 degrees until (laughs) Thanksgiving, and maybe that'll work. Um, Programming note, this is a public episode this week, so if you're listening here and you'd like to hear weekly episodes from Bill and I, you can do that by subscribing to either Cynicism or Stratechery. You should really subscribe to, to both. both. A lot of great daily content from Bill at Cynicism and Ben Thompson at Stratechery. You also get daily podcasts from me in that scenario. Uh, so if you're not already subscribed, there will be links in the show notes. Get on board as the news picks up this fall. And Bill, we've got a lot to cover today, a lot of ground to cover. You put the call out for some questions in the Substack chat. We've got a couple good emails. And we'll start with a question and some news. So first was Kate in the Substack chat on Saturday. She says, I might have missed this, but what was the thinking behind she skipping meetings at the BRICS conference? And then a day later, it was reported that she will also skip the G20 summit in India that was scheduled for this weekend in New Delhi. I'll read one report from Bloomberg. They write, President Xi Jinping began his third term with a diplomatic blitz that bolstered his image as a global statesman. Now he's skipping the world's premier international forum of world leaders, and it's not exactly clear why. Whatever the reason, his absence marks a major shift in how Xi operates. The Chinese leader has attended every G20 leader summit since taking power in 2012 and he's also sought to burnish his image as a peacemaker since emerging from three years of COVID isolation at last year's meeting in Bali, Indonesia. Back then, she stressed the importance of dialogue, telling U.S. President Joe Biden it was a statesman's responsibility to, quote, get along with other countries. Uh, so, Bill, was this telegraphed at all? I mean, like you and I had talked once or twice about a meeting on the sidelines with Biden at this summit. But I can't get a sense for how surprising this was to the other countries at the summit um, and just the rest of the world here as she skips the uh, likely skips the summit this weekend. Oh, uh, no, he's he is not going. It will be Premier Li Xiang will be at the G20. The, the soon after the Reuters report last week that she would not go and that he would be sending the premier in his place. Uh, some Indian media reported that actually the Indian side had known about it for a month. Um, not clear if that's sort of face saving or if that's true, but um, th- it may not be uh, suddenly sort of sudden, like a sudden decision that happened, okay. say last week. And and to the to the question though is we have no idea. Just like 
And, you know, we have no idea why he, why Xi Jinping missed that business forum meeting at the BRICS summit after he'd arrived or BRICS meeting. And then he went and had a, had another meeting soon after. And so it was just like a sort of a weird period in the afternoon where you know, maybe he was tired, maybe he was jet lagged. I mean, you just don't know. And they don't say. Yeah. Well, we let off Sharp China with it a couple of weeks ago saying, I wonder, I said, I wonder whether any more detail will ever surface here it, or whether it, it, it hasn't. Guessing. But yeah. what was also quite remarkable is, you know, the CCTV evening news, 7 p.m. every night goes out to the whole country. You know, they report religiously on everything she does. And so they reported on the speech that she gave at this business forum. In fact, the speech was read out by the Minister of Commerce. And the way the CCTV evening news reported on it was sort of a, a long distance shot of a blurry stage. And then usually the newsreader will read out she speeches anyway. So it was the way it was presented was there was no indication she that she speech. wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Right. And, and so again, we have no idea why he didn't attend that. We we do not know why he's not going to the G twenty. There's you know several avenues or lines of speculation. One is that uh, he's he's unhappy with India. You know the way things were going with the border issues, and maybe he didn't have a great meeting with Modi at BRICS. Another is that it's sort of more another sort of snub to the G twenty. You know, he's working on building bricks into a much larger global organization. Why would he need to go to the G20 if he's doing bricks? That's one other avenue of speculation. Another is that um, it's going to be mostly about economics and the Chinese economy is not doing well. And he doesn't want to have to deal with some of the criticisms that China is likely going to get, especially over, um, you know, they, they, they released this updated, this new map for 2023 with what they say is the official PRC territory. There was nothing new in that map, but it drew like a whole bunch of countries are going nuts because they claim that the Chinese are claiming their territory too, even though this is the same map they've been pushing out for years. The claims are expansive, at least in like a country like India's eyes, where they claim that China is. They went to war. It's not, it's more than just expansive. They went to war. They have, they've had, you know, clashes that killed. Uh, dozens of people a couple of years ago. I mean, there there's a pretty significant territorial dispute between India and China that is unresolved. And it would be like the U.S. releasing a map where we're just taking more and more chunks of Canada each time with, with each passing decade as we update our maps. Is that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to provide an analogy for any of the free listeners here who are new to all this. Um, um, had, yeah. had we had we gone to war with Canada 60 plus years ago. Um, yeah. But, you know, and then another another again, this is all speculation. You know, obviously the Chinese we talked about last week, the Chinese side has been very vocal in their um sort of opposition and punishment of Japan over the Fukushima water release. And, you know, Japan is going to be there. And, you know, no one else seems to have joined China in this in this um uh, and these efforts to really go after Japan. And so, again, just, there's just lots of reasons that maybe it wouldn't be the most easiest of venues for Xi right now. Um, mm-hmm. There's also, you know, people will speculate, oh, is something going on politically? Is he sick? Uh, is this a way to elevate, you know, sort of let Li, Li Qiang, the premier, have more foreign exposure? Because, I mean, I think there's some media outlet quoted a scholar who said, oh, she's like the emperor. Why should he travel? He can send out his sort of you know, minions underlings, to do stuff, yep. underlings to do stuff. We just, we just don't know. And I think the, really the real issue, um, another, another point of speculation is, well, maybe he didn't want to have to meet with Biden because things aren't going well in the U S and China. And, and so they want to push off the potential for a meeting until November, um, at the big, uh, APEC meeting in San Francisco. 
Right. Yeah. Well, and I, I read that a number of people theorized that if he's meeting with Biden, he wants to be meeting on she's terms and not in a neutral setting like this, doesn't want to do another meeting on the sidelines of the G20 like he did in Bali yeah. a year ago. Um, the relationship with India, it, it's in a bad place, number one, because of the border issues. Number two, because India has been fairly aggressive about policing Chinese apps and stuff like that. And the back and forth with the media that they've expelled um, Mm -hmm. is certainly getting pretty toxic. Uh, And then India has been increasingly cooperative with the United States, which I'm sure she doesn't like. Um, And in the same way that maybe that's informing some of the outrage at Japan and Fukushima and because Japan is also increasingly cooperative with the United States. I was wondering whether that could have been informing the snub of Modi here. It might. I mean, that's the thing. And then we just, we don't know. And um, we probably never will. I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not, you know, how many meetings sort of bilateral meetings Premier Lee ends up having on the sidelines. If he meets all the leaders, if, if he meets President Biden, um, not clear. Certainly, U.S. presidents have met premiers before in other venues, um, so it wouldn't be necessarily like a sort of a concession or a break of pred- protocol for the U.S. president to meet with the premier of China. Um, but it, it wouldn't be the same as a Xi Biden meeting. Yeah. Well, and how much of a break of protocol is it for you know an underling to attend a summit like this? Like, I think this I is the first one. Rare. Yeah. No, I think this is the first one that the Chinese leader hasn't gone to when they're a member i think um yeah. so no it's 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 definitely it's it's definitely a thing it's a, it's it's something important um and again we're we're not going to get an official explanation because that's not how that system works right but it, it is again like the absence from the meeting at you know that one form at the at the BRICS meeting it's just another point of like speculation like what the heck's going on and it allows all sorts of rumors and and speculation to to fly because we just it's such a black box and we're just not going to know a hundred percent and thank you kate for the reminder that he skipped the speech at the BRICS forum um i was unaware of that cctv report but that's incredibly strange i had just forgotten about that whole episode no it's not strange it's it's not strange it's 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 how the it's consistent sure that's very very fair (laughs) fair point fair point uh well all of this i would say is consistent with the theme that has emerged over the last few years where it's like china is becoming increasingly isolated and it does now put even more pressure on the u.s china relationship and and the question of whether she is going to actually show up later this fall at APEC to finally meet with Joe Biden. And so on that front, there was also some news recently. The Financial Times reports, China's powerful spy agency has attacked recent diplomatic overtures from the U.S. as mixing engagement and containment, hinting that a possible meeting of the two countries' presidents in November will be in jeopardy if Washington does not show more, quote, sincerity. Recently, and this is the MSS writing, Recently, a number of U.S. officials visited China one after another, saying that the Biden administration has no intention to curb China's development or seek decoupling from China, the MSS said in a statement on its official WeChat social media account. The U.S. strategy on rapprochement with China was, quote, old wine in new bottles, the ministry said. 
pointing at Washington's approval of arms sales and military financing to Taiwan, over which Beijing claims sovereignty. Quote, China will never relax its vigilance because of a few beautiful words from the United States, it said. The MSS then issued what appeared to be a veiled warning on an expected meeting between China's President Xi Jinping and Biden at the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum in San Francisco in November. This would be their first meeting since they spoke last year at the G20 in Bali, Indonesia. And the MSS writes, quote, to truly achieve from Bali to San Francisco, the United States needs to show sufficient sincerity. So, Bill, what did you think of this message from the MSS? And, and how do you think that sort of message is viewed by the Biden administration? So it's a very it's very interesting, um, and I think in today's the newsletter that's going to go out today Tuesday, so the day after you, the day right the day we're recording this podcast, I'm actually going to have a more of a translation of that whole MSS piece because the couple of news articles do it some credit, but there's more stuff that's in there that's interesting. I think that um, to start where you ended, you know, the piece concludes with the line about to achieve from Bali to San Francisco, the U.S. needs to show true sincerity. I joked a few months ago, the theme from the Chinese side has always been sort of, and, and the U.S. side is getting back to Bali. It's like a sappy love song from a broken relationship, right? So oh, yeah. let's, get, let's get back to Bali, right? So now they've upgraded to from Bali to San Francisco. But the idea is Biden and she had this, made this understanding last year at Bali, and therefore the two sides need to show sincerity. Really, from the Chinese perspective, the U.S. needs to do all these things to show sincerity, to change, to, to correct to recognize the error of their ways and correct their erroneous actions and come back onto the right path to fix U.S.-China relations. And then, of course, it was delayed by the balloon, right? Because right. Blinken was about – the Blinken trip was sort of the first big deliverable or outcome from the Bali meeting last year. And then it was, it was derailed, of course, by, um, by the – Literally, the day um, Lincoln was ready to take unmanned off. Unmanned civilian airship, primarily for meteorological purposes. <laughs> right. Right? No surveillance um, exercises for so, that unmanned um, airship. So no, now the, there's sort of- the, the one thing that I would add to that is if you haven't been following the back and forth between the U.S. and China for the last six months, it is almost bizarre how frequently Bali came up in some of the readouts from various meetings between the U.S. and China. Like there's all these different allusions to understandings that were reached in Bali to the extent that like I'm left wondering reading it like what was actually agreed upon in Bali because that's the it's it's the new strut that sort of they want to put the lower floor on the relationship on right it's another it's basically that's the that's the stabilizing factor in the relationship was back to what we agreed on at Bali, back to Bali. And, yeah. and of course, it isn't, you know, both sides have differing understandings of that, right? And certainly from the U.S. perspective, the Chinese view of everything is the U.S.'s fault and the U.S. has to, you know, is the one who has to show sincerity and, and you know, correct their erroneous ways and return to the right path it is not how the U.S. government sees it, right? Um, and of course, the Chinese government sees themselves as we're, we're just doing what we do and the U.S. is being, I mean, it, it, one of the terms they use um, in this MSS piece is, uh, you know, hegemonic and domineering. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of hegemonic discussion and criticism of the U S. Um, so, so that's where it is. I think on this particular piece of MSS, a couple other things that are really interesting. One is again, that we talked about, I think last week, how the MSS is now the ministry of security. They, they launched this WeChat, I think August 1st, they're very public. They have two, three times a week. There's a new piece from them and, um, everyone, you know, becomes a news story. Uh, mm-hmm. When they when they write something, 
it is interesting that they have weighed in on U.S.-China relations, right? That is a, um, you know, you kind of wonder what's going on inside the system because this is really what the foreign ministry would talk about. And so why is the MSS talking about it? I will say that today, there's another one that from the MSS that talks about uh, the headline is the, the first star on the CIA memorial wall. It's a wall that has anonymous stars of CIA officers who died in the line of duty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, if you, and you'll see any movie you see about the CIA when they walk into headquarters and you, they walk over the seal, the wall's off to the side. And yeah. sometimes they'll show it, yeah, right? It's sort of, but I'm familiar with it from like Jack Ryan movies. Jack Ryan, yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, Jack Ryan. I think that's the one I just saw. Um, but so, so the, the thing that the headline today was basically um, that... The uh, the first black star on the memorial wall was connected to China. So two days in a row, they're talking about U.S.-China relations. That's interesting. Exactly why we can, you know, again, there'll be speculation, but it, it is interesting that the one of the vice ministers of the MSS um, is an America specialist. His he used to run Kicker, which is the MSS linked uh, think tank. Mm-hmm. Um, his name. When he was running kicker as Yuan Pong, he seems to have changed his name to Yang Kun. And now he's anyway, who knows if he's behind it, but they um his focus was is very much on America and US-China relations. Um why now, you know, I think a couple of guesses is one, uh, I think, you know, we've had a procession of US officials go to Beijing, including Raimondo, most recently. Yeah. Uh, I think the Chinese may feel that the U.S. really wants Xi to go to San Francisco and to have a good meeting with Xi. And so it may be that this is their way of kind of doubling down on the pressure, hoping that by issuing what appears to be sort of a, if you really want to go to San it's Francisco, yeah. you've got it's to show sincerity. More it's, concessions. It's a, or it's a way to pressure the Biden administration to potentially take other steps or relax some pressures. Um, I, I'm not sure that's going to be received that way in D.C. or going to be acted upon. But um, it, it also may be a way of basically, again, reminding everybody that the U.S. is you know the bad actor here. So that if things get worse in the U.S.-China relationship, it's like, hey, we told them, we warned them. Hmm. And they, they're just, they're, you know, they wouldn't listen. And it's all yeah. their fault. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly is bizarre. It would be like the CIA starting a Twitter account and then offering substantive policy commentary on Twitter, or excuse me, now on X. Um, and th- it's a very delicate relationship to be commenting on as cavalierly as this statement appears to be. That's right. and you, But you, we've also seen, like we talked about in an earlier podcast too, about how the, the shift... After the MSS opened this WeChat account, every year for the last several years, April 15th is like National Espionage Counter Espionage Day or National Security Day, sorry. And they would mm-hmm. talk about cases. So-and-so was caught spying for uh, XX country. But they never mentioned the country. And then, of course, this last few weeks, the first time in two different of these WeChat posts from the MSS, they've talked about so-and-so spying for the U.S. and specifically naming the U.S. So there's something something has shifted. Yeah. And, and what I don't think is a probably a positive way for the U.S.-China relationship. And there's no way that this is happening without like alignment with the central government, right? I mean, this isn't like- No, no, someone, no, no. no. They're, they're, this is not some random- It's a like, concerted step that they're Social taking. media manager who got keys to the Twitter <laughs> yeah. account, right? <laughs> yeah, like, feels no. unlikely. Well, and then the other side of it 
as you mentioned, this is coming on the heels of a summer in which the Biden administration. Now, I wrote this down before the podcast. Let me know if I'm missing anybody. But over the last couple months, they sent the CIA director to China uh, secretly. And then it was later reported that he visited Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, climate czar John Kerry, and then Raimondo last week, all in an effort to improve the relationship, put a floor under the relationship, you know, choose your readout cliche. And glide and glide and, and sort of set the path for she to go to San Francisco. It, exactly. We've talked plenty about how ambiguous some of the objectives were for these visits, but the one clear goal, the one clear deliverable was supposed to be this visit in the fall from she at, at the APEC forum in November. And so it's sort of a, sour way to end the summer of engagement for the Biden administration that now the PRC side is floating like, yeah, well, he may not even show up and we need to see you do more. And maybe not going to G20 is a reminder that he doesn't have to go to these things. I don't know. I mean, you never you never know. Right. Again, we talked about earlier. We just don't know why he's not going. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's another sign of sort of an increasingly isolated regime under Xi. Well, um, well they- yeah, yes, yes and no, because he is sending that, you know, Li Keqiang is not only premier, he's the number two in the party hierarchy. I mean, it's not, you know, the U.S. is sending the vice president to the to the ASEAN meeting where Premier Li is today instead of, instead of yeah. Biden. Um, so it, it's, it's not like they're not engaging. It's just Xi himself is, you know, missing the G20. And now this MSS piece is maybe hinting that maybe he, you know, maybe he won't bother to go to San Francisco. Yeah, well, and look, but they'll, they, try, they, they'll probably try and send somebody else. Probably, I should maybe not send Premier Lee. I should not overstate the isolation point either, because they're engaging with the BRICS countries. Uh, she is hosting Vladimir Putin in the next couple months, and so October in the next month, right? Not engaging with certain countries um, and you know Western democracies that helped transform China. That's the other thing is you know the other again back to the G twenty speculation. There's also the well, it's solidarity with Putin. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, this is the problem. It, it certainly is a it's it's not a good sign, whatever it is. And, and um, but on the MSS stuff, the last bit, you know, one other sort of speculation is, again, why is the MSS waiting into U.S. China relations? I mean, you know, is the foreign ministry somehow damaged in their U.S. China work because of what happened in Qingong? We, hmm. You know, we don't know. And we don't know. We don't know where Qingong is. You know, there's plenty of rumors about him and the girlfriend and or the alleged girlfriend and her alleged ties to US or UK intelligence and you know if Xingang got in some kind of trouble the problem is if, if the problem is that there are people in the US embassy in the, the DC embassy here who knew what he was doing at least in terms of having a girlfriend yeah and so there there's a there's other people who he probably will get in trouble because of his actions and so you just wonder what what really is going on Yeah, well, I mean, and it was on the front page of the New York Times on Labor Day, this story about the MSS encouraging Chinese citizens to spy on their neighbors and offering these lavish rewards to people who turned in spies. And they talked also about the, the cases that have surfaced recently or have been surfaced by the MSS itself on this WeChat account, identifying different spies and everything. A couple of those cases are several years old. Mm-hmm. And so 
again, it underscores the mystery in terms of like what the objectives are with all this and what the motivation is to surface, you know, espionage cases that happened in 2019. Like, there are, are foreign spies everywhere. Be careful. There's spies. Yeah. You're 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 at risk of of being approached or corrupted by spies both inside China and outside of China. Be wary of anyone. You know, be suspicious. It's 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 a really um, corrosive message. Yes, um, it's pretty chilling. So and and any country in the U.S. I mean, we've got and we talked about this before. I mean, we've got the whole. Um, See something, say something. Well, we got that, but we got that. We got, uh, you know, the whole sort of like talking about the PRC, the whole of government approach to the U.S. And, you know, we've certainly seen like, oh, you know, Chinese people can't buy, you know, can't buy land or houses in certain states. And, you know, there's yep. a, there's there are manias on both sides. I think um, the 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 MSS and the Chinese side will take it further just because that's there's no way to sue the government to stop something or to protest it or to write op eds and say, this is kind of nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was described in that New York Times story was basically like a security state where there were different sectors of society that you wouldn't think were at risk of any espionage threat or anything else where there are reminders plastered all over the place yeah. from the government uh, to be vigilant. Uh, but uh, to keep it moving, sticking with the U.S.-China theme for a moment longer here, the Washington Post writes, the Mate 60 Pro represents a new high watermark in China's technological capabilities with an advanced chip inside that was both designed and manufactured in China despite onerous U.S. export controls intended to prevent China from making this sort of technical jump. Those sanctions were first imposed by the Trump administration and continued under President Biden. The timing of the phone announcement on Monday while Raimondo was in Beijing appeared to be a show of defiance. Chinese state media declared it showed that the U.S. trade war was a failure. One person told the Washington Post that the Mate 60 Pro has a 5G chip. Speed tests posted by early buyers of the phone online suggest its performance is similar to the top-of-the-line 5G phones, in July, Reuters reported Huawei's imminent return to the 5G phone market, citing three technology research firms speaking on the condition of anonymity. Nikkei Asia has reported, citing sources, that SMIC would be using what's known as the 7 nanometer process to make the chips for Huawei the most advanced level in China. So, Bill... Last week, we were reacting to the news of the new Huawei phone, possibly a 5G phone. It's not 100% certain what's exactly going on, uh, but it turned into a pretty big story in the days that followed mm -hmm. last week's episode. So what else have we learned about what's going on here and, and what are some of the implications both in Beijing and D.C.? So Bloomberg had got Tech Insights to do a breakdown, and it, it's pretty clear it's a chip that SMIC was not supposed to be able to make. And it was not supposed to be able to make in terms of both the limits on what tools they can have are supposed to stop, I think, at 14 nanometers. Um, but also, but we don't, it's not clear how they, how they made it, sort of exactly what they did. They're also, though, um, not supposed to be making things for Huawei uh, with any U.S. input, input technology. And so ah. if, if, if SMIC made this chip for Huawei and they used any U.S. origin technologies, then they are in violation of the rules um, from, from the U.S. perspective. And so, um, but 
Again, we also don't know, like, what are the yields? Is, is this a really sort of kind of messy, expensive process where, you know, some people said the yields are 50% in terms of chips that come out that are actually useful, which is extremely low for, for this kind of process, which would mean that it's, it's a very sort of expensive and wasteful process. However, it, it is an achievement. Um, and I think, though, a couple, a couple things are, one is that, um, you know, it, it's not at all clear that this is then a sign that they've broken through a bunch of different sort of technical barriers and that they can keep going in terms of making more and more sophisticated st- chips or if they've sort of reached close to the limit of what they can do under the current sanctions export control regime. Yep. Um, it's also, though, I think one thing is really clear is, and I, I was, I got to use the middle finger emoji in my newsletter last week because it's it's <laughs> yeah. e- extremely clear that this was just a massive FU to Commerce Secretary Armando. Um, not only, you know, you, you had it happen while she was there. Uh, the Premier Li Chiang, who met with Commerce Secretary Armando, you know, visited the Huawei uh, headquarters the week before, met with Ren Zhengfei, the head of Huawei. Um, mm-hmm. Highly, we don't know, but I will say that it's highly unlikely that Huawei would do this while a U.S. Commerce Secretary was visiting, while she was basically the, around the time she was meeting with the Premier without letting someone in his office know that maybe something was coming. It's possible, right. but it's risky to do that as a yeah, Chinese company. <laughs> There's um, no way. Then, but, then yeah. we also see that there was a, um, uh, a WeChat account that's linked to CCTV. It's called, um, it's called Yuyuan Tiantan. You know, they posted a picture of Raimondo speaking at a press conference, and it has the watermark that says, taken with this new Huawei phone. Yep. So Huawei, limited supplies, the thing sold out immediately, Huawei somehow figured out that they should get it to a CCTV reporter who'd be covering Romano's press conference. So, so if you're the Commerce Secretary, you know you could find the experts to say it's not that big a deal. You know it doesn't mean that they made a true breakthrough, but you have to think that they were trying to send you a message that basically like you guys have failed. That seems like the right way to frame it, which is it may actually not be that big of a deal. But it was very clearly the PRC side trying to send a message, trying to throw the middle finger emoji into the mix with the commerce secretary while she was over there. And yeah, that's, no, that's the way it should be understood. And, and I think, I mean, I think there's not, there's still a lot we don't know about this chip. We, we may never know. I don't think SMIC or SMIC is going to want to admit that they made it. Um, mm-hmm. I, folks I've talked to who are in this world, just going to leave it that, or like there's no one else who could have made it in China. So if if they made it, would then the expected response be to put them on a list of exempt foreign entities or and sanction them in some way? Uh, it's it's unclear. It's unclear how the Biden administration would react. I mean, you've seen um, that's a pretty central company to the Chinese tech se- sector. It would be a big uh, deal. Yeah, no, and and you've seen that that since October seventh, right? That the U.S. government has. Um, you know they've they've delayed additional measures. So there there's a there's a sort of a final rule apparently for Huawei where they're going to revoke a bunch of export licenses. It's been sitting around, hasn't been hasn't been pushed forward. Again, it's part of the back to Bali to San Francisco pathway, right? I think they've been holding off the US, the U.S. government is holding off for certain actions. There are other loopholes um, that came from the October seventh restrictions that um, haven't been plugged. You know that was part of the reason that we had those big tech CEOs meeting at the White House a few, you know, last month. Um, and so again, I think this is one of those things where um, it uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the Biden administration reacts. And I think mm-hmm. that the, it's, it's, I think on the, the flip side is it's risky. On the one hand, there's massive propaganda win for Huawei and the, and the PRC, you know, 
nationalists' happiness because we've broken through, we've proven the U.S. sanctions are, you know, they're, they're, they don't work. We, you know, we're very innovative. We can find ways around it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the, the thing sold out immediately and they're going to, you know, it's, it's like, it's a very, it's very much a um, sort of a, a win from a patriotic nationalist perspective. Um, the problem though is, is again, depending how the pendulum swings in D.C., it could bring down a whole much bigger ton of whole, a much bigger ton of bricks down on SMIC. That could cause them a lot more problems in the future, right? Um, because so we're, we we will have to see how that actually plays out. It's it's not clear. I think it also you know it happened last week. DC was on vacation. Uh, you know, there's lots of stuff that you know. I think there's a Congress is the the the, the House. I think is coming up with an export control a report on the export controls that's due soon. That I think um, is not likely to be particularly complimentary of the Biden approach anyway, uh, in terms of, you know, not be in saying it's not tough enough. So okay. this will only sort of give fuel to that argument. Um, and so it's going to be an interesting few weeks to see sort of how this all shakes out. Um, yeah. you know, like, like SMIC stock was up big, a bunch of other Chinese semiconductor related stocks were up big. Um, you know, if the U S were to say, you know, take much harsher steps against, against SMIC, um, probably the stock price would not stay up big. Right. I mean, when we were discussing it a week ago, I was sort of looking at it as a funny PR ploy. Um, And granted, there's some substance there. Obviously, it's a big deal that Huawei can do this and re-enter the hardware market. And it's it's a big deal for Huawei in particular, um, because that was a huge business that was sort of shelled over the last couple Mm -hmm. of years. Um, But then it snowballed since then. And over the weekend, I was kind of marveling at some of the reactions because with the export controls all along, you've had people who will say the export controls are decimating the Chinese technology sector and they'll never recover. And this is economic war and everything else. And then on the other side, particularly this weekend, you've had a lot of people say, See, you can't kill the Chinese tech sector and the export controls have only made them stronger. They're going to make the Chinese economy self-sufficient moving forward and we should all be concerned and the export controls aren't working, yada, yada, yada. Um, I think in that fray, there was a piece from Jay Goldberg at Digits to Dollars. He writes really well about the semiconductor industry and... um, To frame it, I will just say that my knowledge of this industry is fairly rudimentary. I will say that China has uh, deep ultraviolet lithography machines, and those are less advanced than the Dutch extreme ultraviolet lithography machines that rely on U.S. technology and have been banned uh, of sale to China. And so Goldberg writes in terms of what's actually being achieved here, their seven nanometer process is probably the limit of what they can produce without access to EUV. And let's not forget that labels like seven nanometer are marketing terms. In terms of actual comparisons, what matters most is transistor density. And on this metric, this source claims SMIC is about 10% behind what TSMC labels seven nanometers. There is a non-zero chance that SMIC is actually struggling to build these parts and is losing a lot of money in the process. Again, we may never see this in their public accounts, as someone somewhere is likely subsidizing this work. Yes. Many people assume that SMIC is pushing the boundaries of what DUV, 
deep ultraviolet can accomplish. Unless Huawei and SMIC have made some incredible secret breakthrough, this means there is no future for this process. Maybe they can squeeze out a bit more density for one more round, but beyond that, they would be breaking the laws of physics. So while the Kirin 9000 is a real achievement, this is the chip that was released last week in the Mate 60 Pro, we are highly skeptical that this really changes anything. So uh, take that for what it's worth. I'm not sure what to make of any of it, but it's notable that there are, and and Goldberg goes on to, to point this out, there are a lot of people who are incentivized to overstate the significance of Huawei's new phone here and and what it actually means and what the capabilities on the Chinese side are because the pro-China people have their own incentives to do that. And then also people in the US who feel like the administration isn't being tough enough are incentivized to talk about this phone like it's proof that China's already caught up and, and right. nothing we've tried to do is working. And, and the reality is, you know, Apple's reducing, releasing its iPhone 15 next week. And I think this this technology that Huawei pushed out is something like at least five years behind Apple um, yep. about the, the phone that's coming out next week. Um, just so, you know, and, 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 and so it's, it's an achievement, but it's certainly not a, a cutting edge chip or phone. I mean, one thing I'll say on the export controls, and I think, again, this is where I think there's going to be some problems for SMIC here in DC, is that the way the rules were written out of commerce, out of the, the BIS in, inside commerce, really had a whole bunch of loopholes in it that, um, really lets let SMIC buy a whole bunch of stuff. After October 7th, um, the US, the way the rules were written, they, the Chinese could stockpile a bunch of stuff that was supposed to be restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, th- I think also that the stuff that could be, that the, the SMIC could buy, the sort of stuff that was restricted, was supposed to only go to um, some of their fabs, but not their most advanced ones, but, the China, but they're putting them in their most advanced ones, is what I hear. Um, and ah. so th- there's just a lot of things that may that if true that may come out that are going to make it look like um, one not that this is not a technical achievement but two that this will make it look like uh, it, it will it, it will give ammunition to the folks in DC especially who are saying that the Biden administration has been turning a blind eye to certain things that have allowed these things to happen in ways that the, the original intent the the original intent of the rules these weren't supposed to happen. Um, yep. So I think that's where I pointed out earlier. I just think that there there's actually risk for SMIC here because this could you know it was a great victory, huge propaganda victory, um, you know technical achievement, stock went up. Um, but depending on how the pendulum swings in DC, it could really blow up in their faces. And I will say that you know the Commerce Secretary herself, it, I think a lot of it is well, how does does she realize? Does she care? Does she even understand how this was such a sort of a slap in her face, or she just doesn't care? Yeah. And, you know, I'm torn because on the one hand, I, I would understand not caring. Like the symbolism of it is a big deal in the PRC. But at the end of the day, like it's a cell phone um, and I'm not sure it really matters that much. Right. The propaganda value, it did lead to some hilarious cell phone cases being sold with <laughs> Secretary of Commerce, yes. Gina Raimondo's face all yes. over them. I, w- I was not expecting the the fu to be quite as explicit as it turned out to be over well, the it, last it, week of Chinese media. It, it, and the other thing I'll say, I think we I think we talked about this on last on last week's podcast is that you know in, in some ways it's the worst of both worlds. Like like to put on these various export controls, but then have so many loopholes that they don't they right. they they allow things like this to happen because 
you know, the U.S. looks like the bad actor by forcing all these, all these controls. It, it allows the Chinese to tell the story of, you know, again, back to the sort of they're fighting against the domineering, the dominant hegemon, both from a, and foreign sort of external propaganda, but domestic propaganda. Um, and then they get this victory, whether or not it's truly a victory um, in terms of sort of changing the game or whether it's like, like, like the person you quoted earlier, sort of, it's just about the limit of what they can do under the current. But it's just, it's just like if the U.S., I think, I think it's, it's, and really it's almost the worst of both worlds because it has, it has focused minds in China. So, you know, you've got now a, sort of top-down process to try and break through all these choke points, uh, technology choke points around semiconductors with nearly unlimited funds from the central government, uh, refocusing all sorts of technology companies and academic institutions and scientists to to, to sort of figure out how to break through these chokeholds. It's much more likely that the Chinese will actually be able to uh, innovate and break through some of these technologies in the next few years than they would have five years ago before these controls because it was too hard and too expensive and it, to try and focus on that and it was too easy to just keep buying foreign technology. Yeah. So it's so it's almost like you know it's like either you do it all the way or you don't do it and instead you sort of do this halfway kind of half rear end approach in some areas and again I think in some ways it's almost worse than nothing and I think the Chinese are like wow this is. There are areas that are tough, but there's also a whole bunch of loopholes and let's, you know, this is, we can make it work over time. And this ultimately, ultimately will be better for us on the Chinese side because we, it will, it will have forced us to deal with the fact that we are too reliant on the U.S. especially, and we need to be self-sufficient in some of these areas. And of course, the Chinese side, you know, they want to delay that as long as possible until they're ready Right. They want to talk about don't break supply chains, don't do this because they want to do they want to they're not ready yet. Right. Oh, yeah. And so it's all about buying time. Don't rock this, the boat until you yeah, can actually until, until you can blow it up it on your own. Yeah. 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 Well, what about one other argument for Secretary Raimondo not taking the bait and making a big deal out of this? And again, there are people in Washington who have all sorts of different incentives to make a big deal mm-hmm. out of it. And they may be right that the export controls aren't effective as they're currently written and need to be either tightened or abandoned so that this talking point is no longer useful in a geopolitical context. But um, the other argument that I would throw out there is China can make this a big deal and it could be a big propaganda win, sell your cell phone cases if you want. But what the U.S. is doing, and I've been sort of skeptical of the engagement strategy on this uh, podcast, but one of the things that is beneficial is the rest of the world can see the U.S. going to the table in good faith, and they can build alliances that way and build credibility that way. And it may be more effective to sort of like use restraint and not get into a pissing match, as it were, over a new Huawei phone and just try to slowly build alliances with the rest of the region and, and isolate China that way. Does that make and, and sense? I think, no, it does. That's a good articulation. I think of what the Biden administration is, is has been trying to do. And, and that is certainly, um, that may be the approach the administration takes. I mean, it, it, it's a, I, I can pretty much tell you how sort of folks on the GOP are probably going to react and some of the pressures that are going to, or some of the criticism of the Biden administration, that doesn't mean the Biden administration should listen to them. But I think that um, it, it is a, um, you know, the flip side of that is the Chinese, of course, use it as a say, say, look, the U.S. is suppressing us. You know, there's this 
you know, they're, they're trying to keep us down. They're trying to keep us poor. They're oh, trying yeah. to keep us from developing, um, you know, and, oh, but they're failing. Cause look, we made this phone. Right. And so, I mean, in this broader contest, it's it, it sort of, you know, the U S has gotten Japan, South Korea, the Dutch somewhat mostly on board with some of these restrictions, not completely. Um, it, it, it's a, uh, and so again, I think it's, it's, it, there's certainly going to be folks, smart people who will make the argument for restraint from the U S side and say, it's, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's DC. And so how that really plays out, especially as we're now barely a year out from the election next year, um, especially when you have certain members of the Biden administration too, who have future political aspirations. And if they end up looking like they were humiliated by China or weak on China, that could cause them problems. There's just a lot of different factors going on here that could, I think lead to more of a, um, a reaction uh, than, than maybe sort of the actual technical facts would merit. I, I, again, we'll see, right. This is all speculation. Yeah. Well, the story is not over. The the one thing I will say Okay. Is I am so sick of hearing the small yard high fence analogy um, when they talk about technology because I think the people who use that have never actually done gardening. Um, <laughs> I, no, no, because okay, so what's the fence? Is it a solid fence? Does it have holes in it? Yeah. Is it does it go underground or is it just at ground level? Because you know I grow bamboo. Well, if you want to keep bamboo in a fence, you need to basically put dig deep and put thick barriers around it for certain types. Man, if you don't, the bamboo is going to get out. Do you have rabbits? Will they get into the fence? I, I watched the rabbit get through basically a hole not much bigger than a chicken wire hole. I, I don't think they have bones. I mean, mm. I'm sort of ranting here, but at the same time, it's like one of these really lazy analogies that everyone uses, but actually in reality means nothing. We should rank the China-US cliches one day. The old wine, new bottles is a good one. Back to Bali, uh, small yard, high fence. Is is it big yard, small fence, or small Uh, yard, high fence? Small yard, high fence. (laughs) Okay, yes. yes. Well, and also, just so everyone knows, Bill, I'm pretty sure you could host a completely separate podcast about gardening. I'd probably be happier. You you definitely would be happier. (laughs) I would not have much to offer in that context, but I really enjoy the gardening updates I get from you on social media. Um, It's a passion that's been under-discussed. We focus a lot on Tashi and not enough on your gardening (laughs) expertise. So maybe uh, that cliche can force us to get into that more often. No, but I mean, it's sort of a joke, but at the same time, it's it's just one of those things that I think ultimately doesn't, it, it, it sort of like explains why it doesn't really work. Yeah. Um, and, and I know it came from Bob Gates years ago and it was, it's just one of those things that sort of just keeps it sort of part of the DC blob now. And, and it's sort of the, the, the easy way to say why we're really just trying to protect a small amount of really important technology. Yes. Well, speaking of the DC blob uh, to keep it moving, I want to play this audio from Rahm Emanuel. This is a clip from the Wall Street Journal What's News podcast. It's hosted by Luke Vargas, and here he is interviewing Rahm Emanuel last week. Economic ties between the U.S. and China are slipping now. You have been outspoken in your criticism of of the Communist Party at a time when, you know, cabinet officials have been trying to put a floor under relations. I'm I'm for that. I'm for not only a floor, I'm for a dialogue. But I'm also not for being, as my father would say, a schmuck. And he said it with this term of endearment. I mean, what I mean by this is (laughs) Xi stood in the Rose Garden 
and said, we will never militarize the South China Sea. The wheels of his plane were not up in the belly of the plane when they were doing exactly that. They're part of the World Trade Organization, international economic structure. I can't tell you how many times I had a CEO in my office when I was chief of staff, when I was a congressman, and would say that they're stealing uh, intellectual property, they're stealing products, they're making us give it to them for free so they could basically underwrite and then also undermine your product and do nothing but replicate it. Not, not even a bolt or a screw was different. So at some point, you got to say, look, now you can sit there and say, well, we'd like to have a great relationship, but if they're going to keep uh, the Communist Party and specifically under Xi, use lying and cheating as a modus operandi of the state and its legitimacy, then you would be a fool to go into that discussion negotiation not cognizant of what they're doing. And my view is, keep doing what you're doing. You're the one with 30% unemployment among youth, not us. You got 10 years of housing with nobody in it. You got people that are getting fleeced by uh, the big developers and the banks. You got you know municipalities in China that make Chicago look like a AAA-rated bond. <laughs> Keep at it. There is nothing the United States is doing to you that measures what you've done to yourself. We didn't do any of that. And so my point is, I'm ready to have a conversation. I'm also ready not to get in the way of you to doing to yourself what we could never only hope on our best day could get done to you. And if you want to stay doing it and you want to walk away from the international system that you benefited from, well, there for the grace of God, go ahead. Why should I get in the way of that? Ambassador Emanuel, thank you very much for Thanks. your time. Yeah, thank you. So I have to say, when I first heard those comments, I thought to myself, all right, good for Rahm Emanuel. The candor is refreshing in a world of cliches that we were just alluding to. And he's free to just let it rip now that he's out of public service. Well, no, he's a diplomat. He's ambassador it's, to Japan. Exactly. Exactly. So then I realized, oh, my God, he is the sitting U.S. ambassador to Japan. So um, in that context, it reads a little bit different. What did you think of what he had to say there? <laughs> Always entertaining. Um, uh, I, I talked to someone who used to uh, deal with him a lot who said, you know, the good thing about Ram is he's no bullshit. Right. He's always tells you what he thinks. And, yep. I, you know, so again, is this, yeah, you know, he's obviously, he's been in Tokyo. He, you know, he, he's, he's in Tokyo watching the Chinese reaction to Fukushima and other stuff that's going on. And so, you know, is he, is he in part reflecting sort of what he's hearing from the Japanese government? Maybe. Um, is he, are his comments sort of an undistilled version of what folks in the State Department and other parts of the Biden administration really think, but don't actually say publicly. Uh, also, his his starting comments about Xi and the Rose Garden, talking about not militarizing the South China Sea, you know, that was during the Obama administration. They have long memories, right? Because um, you look at you look at him, uh, you know, Kirk Campbell, who's in the White House now, was uh, worked on this deal over Scarborough Shoal, um, uh, Huang Yandao, where they thought the Chinese were going to pull out, thought they had a deal. The, the Chinese didn't pull out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so so there are folks who've done this before in previous administrations who are frankly feel like they were um, lied to, pl played played for a schmuck, yeah. so to speak. And you know, in some ways, it's too bad that Brahm Emanuel isn't the Commerce Secretary who went to Beijing last week because I think he would have a more vociferous reaction to the 
Huawei FU than we've seen so far from the current and Commerce let's Secretary. Let's not forget the Commerce Secretary was hacked and then went over oh. there a couple of weeks <laughs> oh. later or months, I guess. It wasn't very long and right. it doesn't seem like it was a point of contention. I imagine that timeline plays out differently if if Rom is in charge there. Um but so you know we'll see. These these popped up last week. Again, it was it was a quiet week in DC. Government, lots of people on vacation in the press corps too. We'll see whether or not these comments have any sort of a um, have an impact. I have yet to see, and maybe I've missed it, but I've yet to see the Chinese reaction to them. Mm. Um, it's just interesting to hear that kind of a undiplomatic talk from a diplomat. Yeah, but he's not. He's obviously he's not a professional diplomat, and it is interesting that he has that such high uh, regard for the Chicago's public finances when he used to be the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was surprised that Chicago took a stray in the midst of all right. that. But yeah, I, it, it, it was just amusing um, alongside so much careful language yes. to have Rom just tee off there and say, you guys have been lying about this and this and this. And then elsewhere in that Wall Street Journal interview, he laid out various conflicts that China has initiated throughout the Asia Pacific region over the last six to nine months, um, which is notable and said, look, there's one common denominator in all these international controversies. Uh, But then to have him list out all these grievances and then say, and by the way, your system is an abject failure and you're ruining your country more than we could ever hope to. Um, and, and, you know, that remarkable. that is a little bit, you have to be careful there. You know, we'll see, right? There, There's never underestimate American hubris and arrogance. That's um, fair. Yep. As, as entertaining as these comments are, you know, there are a lot of things that have worked in the Chinese system. I'm not going to defend it. There are a lot of problems right now, but you, you know, we talked a little bit about the sort of the, I think it was, Two podcasts ago, we talked about sort of the triumphalism about, oh, look, maybe the Chinese economy is going to collapse. And I said, well, you know, you go through these cycles. There's a little bit of sort of over-exuberance that somehow the Chinese system is failing right now. Mm. Um, and, you know, eh, we'll see. I, 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 Again, I'm still sticking with the – they have a lot of different ways to keep pushing forward, keep muddling through. And, and I think that people need to be a little bit careful about being sort of too triumphalist. Yep. I think that's well said. Um, and it's certainly the official policy of this podcast. The truth is going to be somewhere in the middle going forward. The, tru- the truth is out there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Another <laughs> another theme we return to frequently. Um, all right. So from the information and speaking of the Chinese economy, when Apple dealt with Chinese manufacturers in the past, it was to buy low level components such as small metal parts, paper boxes and batteries. For advanced parts such as displays and chips, the iPhone maker turned to firms headquartered in the U.S., Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. Times are changing. Apple is currently testing advanced displays made by two Chinese suppliers for possible inclusion in future models of its Vision Pro mixed reality headsets, said two people with direct knowledge of the matter. The two suppliers, BOE Technology and SIA Technology, are among a crop of Chinese companies that are making high-end technologies spurred by government policies designed to reduce China's reliance on foreign tech while also making its homegrown firms more competitive. One person said Apple is evaluating BOE's and CES displays for future models of both a Vision Pro and a cheaper headset internally codenamed N109. 
reducing the cost of its Vision Pro headsets, which will retail for $3,500 a piece, will be crucial if Apple wants to promote mass adoption of the devices. There isn't a guarantee that BOE and SIA can meet Apple's quality standards, though the tech giant has been known to embed its own engineers at supplier factories to help them solve production challenges and improve manufacturing quality. Uh, I don't have a question about this. I just wanted to to note it for the record as a counterpoint to a lot of the trends we've been seeing over the last couple months. And even a lot of the stories we'll see about Apple and all the things they're doing to shift away supply chains from China and establish operations in India and other countries. Um, This is a really important project for Apple, and they're going to China and sending people over there, apparently, to help these manufacturers sort of develop that expertise. Yeah, no, that's right. And again, was for for all the you know the shifting out of China, the Chinese suppliers go with them. Well, and I'm surprised that Apple. You would think that at this point, Apple would actually be really careful about committing like critical aspects of its supply chain to the PRC. Um, and yet, here we are. They're still going to just continue to forge ahead with the same strategy for the last 25 years. It looks like it's worked so far. It's true. It's, it's right. I mean, but no, but I, I agree with you. It, it is, but it's also like, I, what, what was it? The, the, the original supplier, was it Sony was the original supplier for the screens? I think Ben talked yeah. about it on like one of, uh, either on, on Sharp Tech or in, in one of his tech reposts when he sort of went out to Apple and he got to try on the, the Vision Pro. I think they mentioned, I think, or maybe it was Sony. on Dithering. I think they talked, it was Sony and they Sony can't make enough. Yeah, that's the issue. And it's unclear. I mean, this is now a VR conversation. Some of the technology that's required to make these headsets work is incredibly expensive and requires companies to commit hundreds of billions of dollars to develop new manufacturing processes to serve the demand. And countries outside of China are not sure whether people are actually going to want Vision Pro headsets and enough of these headsets to make that kind of upfront investment worthwhile in the long term, whereas some of the Chinese suppliers have state support uh, that help kind of make that choice much easier. And, and for Apple, they they find those kind of companies and they can basically work with them to build the products they want. And because of the sort of their financial status, financial status of these companies, they can become very, very low cost providers that, and it sort of locks them into though using Chinese suppliers because then the Sony's or whatever, they can't compete because their cost is too high. So it's sort of, it's, it's actually Apple may get more screens faster, but, but it may lock them into sort of this relying on these Chinese suppliers for even longer. And the last sentence I read in this report, there isn't a guarantee that BOE and SIA can meet Apple's quality standards, though the tech giant has been known to embed its own engineers at supplier factories to help them solve production challenges. Is that sort of Apple's modus operandi? It seems like it. I mean, one of it recently blew up in its face, which was they were they were working with, um, I think it was YMTC to do um, yep. flash memory for the iPhone. And my understanding is that they did a... Um, they did a lot of work with the YMTC to get them up to snuff technically to be able to actually work, you know, to hit Apple standards. And then of course, YMTC got, you know, subject to sanctions. Oh, that's right. But they now have this expertise that they weren't going to have before if they weren't going to be an Apple supplier. That's the, that's the incentive on the PRC side. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to work with Apple? 
Yep. The best instruction in the world yeah. to make high-end yeah. technology. Yeah. Well, um, it was just a, an interesting story that caught my eye in the shadow of the Huawei freakout. Um, as far as global demand for the Vision Pro, are you going to be purchasing a Vision Pro when it hits the market? Do you know yet? Uh, not unless there's um, it works really well with people who need corrective lenses. Because I I've like we have the Oculus and it just doesn't work with my glasses and it just gives me a headache. Yep, I have the headache problem as well. Yeah, I'll be so, curious to see whether they can solve that one. Maybe we can borrow Ben's, right? I'm sure he'll get one. <laughs> I'm angling for that. Okay, I want to. That's a nice compromise. I get to try it, use it. I don't have to yeah. spend thirty five hundred dollars. Um, yeah, we'll and the other the other thing is, I just you know the first round thirty five hundred bucks. I don't know. You know, wait a couple of years, it'll probably be. You know, I'd be great if you can if you can put one on and you can go to a concert or you can go, you know, courtside seats at a basketball game or watch Messi play or something. Or, you know, by the time it's cheaper, the commanders are going to be winning the Super Bowls again under new ownership. And <laughs> yeah. so so we can sort of be, you know, the sort of sideline, sort of standing on the sideline watching the commanders uh, beat the Eagles. Yeah. Every well, game. Thank you to the information. <laughs> a cheaper headset code named N109. N109 yeah. probably coming like 2035, just in time for that Commander Super Bowl run. <laughs> we'll see. Hey, hey, hey. Um, have faith. Jo- yeah, I have no faith whatsoever. <laughs> Although, hey, new day without Dan Snyder. Um, Joe says there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. We could run through some mailbag questions quickly here. Okay. And the, the Wall Street Journal was writing about Chinese nationals gate crashing at U.S. military installations. What do you guys think of this? Is this something you could see becoming a significant point of contention between the U.S. and China going forward? And I'll just read the lead from the journal story. Chinese nationals, sometimes posing as tourists, have accessed military bases and other sensitive sites in the U.S. as many as 100 times in recent years, according to U.S. officials who described the incidents as a potential espionage threat. The Defense Department, FBI, and other agencies held a review last year to try to limit these incidents, which involve people whom officials have dubbed gate crashers because of their attempts, either by accident or intentionally, to get onto U.S. military bases and other installations without proper authorization. They range from Chinese nationals found crossing into a U.S. missile range in, in New Mexico to what appeared to be scuba divers swimming in murky waters near a U.S. government rocket launch site in Florida. Bill, do you have any thoughts here? Uh, it was an interesting article. There's a lot of incidents that they catalog, and so I think that um, it's harder and harder to believe that they're all innocent. The article does talk about one that involved two diplomats from the PRC embassy and their spouses who drove onto a, um, a base down in Virginia that... Um, was reported on at the time and I'd heard about it at the time and some other details. And, and it was pretty clear that was not a sort of an innocuous, like, oh, whoops, we got lost. And so, you know, I mean, why wouldn't they, right? If they can, it's, it's you know, it's if they can, if they, you know, especially if over the years, these isolated incidents, a lot of them have been sort of written off as, oh, just a mistake or they got lost or, you know, the Baidu maps doesn't work here or Google, you know, just didn't understand yeah. the language. And you just never know what you what useful information you can pick up. I mean, some of them most likely are are innocent, but you know how often? I mean, one of the interesting questions would be how often do non PRC nationals drive like gate crash like like these folks or scuba dive off or the tour military <laughs> installations? Right. I mean, yeah. maybe it's a thing where where people just wander onto the white with the White Sands missile range, um, like the article talks Picnic, about. The, the, you know, 
Yeah, right. I mean, again, it would be helpful to have more context. Like, like, are there like a thousand of these incidents a year and uh, 5% are from PRC nationals or are there really not that many and then the majority are PRC nationals? We don't know if there were that context that might help give sort of a better sense of how, how bad it is. But the fact that the government, you know, they're sort of have an interagency process would tend to make you think that they're seeing something else going on here that probably is a little bit worrisome. Yeah. Yeah, that was my reaction to reading the journal story. It's just, number one, this is crazy. Number two, it makes me wonder how much classified information about PRC activity there is that the public would find pretty alarming because this just trickles out every couple months. There's like a new weird report about surveillance activities in the U.S. And so I just wonder how much we don't know. Um, And then also... This is pretty sad, like to the extent that the MSS or other security services are deputizing ordinary Chinese nationals to spy for them abroad. Like that's an effort that's going to create new layers of paranoia that implicate all sorts of innocent people. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not a world any of us want to live in. So, oh, And it's mirroring. And again, we talked earlier in this in this episode about the MSS and sort of the whole sort of watch out for spies everywhere. It's we're it's in some ways it's mirroring each other and it's it's just it's 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 cycling in directions that I think are are not at all good. Yeah. But are also have their own logics and are hard to hard to pull back from. Yes. Um well moving down our list here, Danny says, what are some good candidates for potential Lehman moments for the property bust? You mentioned lowering pricing floors the other day. What would that look like mechanically? Do you have any thoughts, Bill? Uh, well, mechanically, that would that would just be that like you you are now allowed to price whatever the market will will what you know whatever the market will clear at. So you don't have to worry about sort of when you go report the, or get your transaction registered if it's a, if it's below a certain price threshold, they want to prove it. Um, I think it depends on the city. We saw over the weekend they they announced sort of loosening some of the property restrictions in. in Beijing and Shanghai, you know, the sort of really the two most desirable cities historically for, for mm-hmm. real estate. And there was a pop in transactions. Uh, you know, there's always some amount of of what the Chinese decided those called rigid demand. It's, you know, folks who you know, mo- most people don't have great housing. And so they want to upgrade. They want a bigger house. They want a nicer house. They want a newer house, et cetera. So, so there's always some level of rigid demand. And so now maybe you're seeing folks who who have this rigid demand realizing or thinking, okay, now's a decent time to pop in because you jump into the market because prices are down a little bit. Um, I think that uh, you, you though, I mean, again, I have never thought that there was going to be a Lehman moment for China because it's just a fundamentally different financial system. And, and it's, it's just, it's the, the, the conditions that created Lehman Brothers um, are not in the Chinese family. There are other problems in the Chinese system and other issues with debt. But there aren't, you know, all the all the crazy sort of dead on dead on debt, the 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 CDOs, the CD, all that stuff. I mean, I actually watched um the big short, big short. Uh, a few okay. days ago. And and you just realize how insane some of the stuff that was going on, how insane it all was. And that kind of leverage is it, it's again, it's just there are lots of reasons why it's just not a crash. One, I think, is unlikely and sort of an uncontrolled crash like we saw in the U.S. financial system is unlikely. And two, there just isn't anything like Lehman Brothers in the system. Yep. 
Well, all I'll say is I rewatched The Big Short also. Recently. Oh, interesting. Maybe and we both got the same promotion on Netflix or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> I probably. And I don't, I, when that movie came out, I didn't like it as much, uh, but it was a fun rewatch, a great and time great cast. What a great a, cast. Too. Exa- yeah, really good acting and a reflection of a truly insane era in American yeah. history. Um, yes, well, We'll go more in depth on the Chinese economy next week because it's been a couple of weeks since we had an extended conversation about it. Uh, I'll close with this from Gab. He says, what are the best Chinese sources if we want to understand how people in China look at, U- at Europe and North America? Social media, official media, what do you think? And then Alex in the subsec chat responded, the best source is a Chinese spouse and in-laws. Um, and that made me smile because <laughs> I thought of you. Uh, what do you think? Are there any sources out there if we want to understand what actual PRC citizens think? Uh, I mean, it's a big country with a billion four people. And so there's no source that's going to tell you what everyone thinks. Uh, there are all sorts of, of good sources. I mean, if you read Chinese, there's a bunch of really good, um, uh, you know, WeChat is uh, there are a lot of good sources on WeChat. There's um so it's 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 a harder question. I'll, I'll we'll, in the show notes. I'll put actually someone put together a good post today of sort of where they um, they read a good newsletter about sort of Chinese consumer habits and they listed out all the sources they use on WeChat in for different uh, okay. categories. It's quite useful. It's quite interesting. So one question for you before we close out here. We've gone too long. I wasn't paying attention to the time. Um, Kaishin, that is a really useful news resource mm-hmm. and. I'm curious why it's allowed to exist in its current form. Like it can write some stuff that's fairly critical or at least not terribly flattering in terms of like the state of the Chinese economy and various local governments and everything else. Like a lot of what I've learned about what's happening in the PRC, I've learned from Kaishin and they are allowed to do that for some reason. Is there any like carve out? that explains that well they used to they used to be able to push the boundaries even more um they've been reined in uh like everyone else so they still have a reasonably wide latitude no they're they have very good journalists uh they um have very good government relations they uh also fit as a publication primarily focused on business and finance and i think you know especially in that in the sort of the glory days of Chaixin, it was seen as look we want to build up our economy build out our capital markets build up our credibility you know we need a publication like this that's helping you know it's, you know that's sort of the, like it, the bloomberg of beijing and, and, and so i think um, and it's you know it's it's not independent it's it's got state-owned money in it um it is obviously subject to all the controls that other uh, media are but it's it serves a role and it's a it's a very good publication they have a good english product english mm-hmm. language product um and they run you know they run conferences they have a data business they they do surveys um you know they do like the taishin pmi um so no it's a it's a very it's a very it's it's one of those things where in some ways, it's too bad if, if they were allowed to report freely, they would blow out all of the foreign media to just blow them out of the water in terms yeah. of their their skills, their sources, their backgrounds. Um, but they're but they have the they have to live under the constraints that the system places on them. And those constraints have gotten tighter over the last few years. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've learned a lot reading their work. Um, I read Kaishin for if, if I'm trying to tai, learn. Kaishin, sorry, Kaishin. Chai 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 like Joe Chai from uh, oh, okay Chai, of the, there you go Chai Chai Xin um, yeah 
butchering it here to close out the podcast. <laughs> I apologize. Sorry. But they do great work. And then uh, for entertainment, the Global Times never disappoints, you know? So uh, we'll, I'm sure, come back with more Global Times next week. But for now, Bill, it's been fun. And I'm glad that both of us now have working internet. I don't plan to leave my house for the remainder of the day here. And hopefully, again, hopefully it's going to stay 97 degrees in D.C. forever. Okay, and this is just what we're going to live with. I'm using the sharp China jinx for good, finally. And we'll see where that leads. Um, But uh, on that note, anybody out there who is not subscribed to the podcast... Subscribe to Cynicism, subscribe to Stratechery, and Bill, I look forward to keeping it rolling the next couple weeks here. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, everybody. 